Uh, Matt kind of alluded at the end of his sermon uh, to the fact that David's sin might have been forgiven, but the consequences uh, would go on. He shared this quote uh, at the end of his sermon. It said this, it said, Repentance is like fetching back a stone that you've just thrown into a pool. The stone can be retrieved, but the ripples will go on spreading. God mercifully accepted David's repentance, but as we'll see in the remainder of his life, the Lord did not choose to stop the ripples. This afternoon, uh, the first and probably the most heart-wrenching of those kind of ripples in David's life is front and center. This afternoon, we're going to see David going through absolute agony and heartbreak. I just want to say before we begin uh, that the passage we're looking at today addresses some things that are really sensitive Uh, that might be really close to the bone for some of us. I just want you to know that if you need to excuse yourself, uh, that there's no judgment there. Uh, But also just to say that we would love you to stick around for a cup of tea uh, and just to to chat about any of these things if uh, anything crops up that you're struggling with. So that being said, uh, would you turn with me uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 12? We're going to start reading in verse 15. And uh, we're going to read this account in short chunks as we go. Second Samuel twelve fifteen, uh, and we'll read till verse 19. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he wouldn't even eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still alive, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He might do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realized that his child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Let me just pray for us before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the Holy Spirit, as he inspired your word, never wasted his breath. And so, Lord, we just approach your word today with a reverence. We approach your word willing to hear what you have to say. We thank you, God, that you, in the way that you have spoken to us, haven't shied away from any part of what it means to be human. And so, Lord, would you teach us today? Would you come and speak to us and comfort us by your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Abraham Lincoln is remembered as one of these kind of great and powerful Uh, leaders in history. He's the one who almost single-handedly ended one of the most awful institutions in Western history in the American slave trade. And if you think of Abraham Lincoln, you think of someone who's almost superhuman. Not somebody who struggled in any way, but a kind of legend of uh, recent history. Few of us, though, know the kind of depths of suffering that Abraham Lincoln went through. He was more than just a legend, more than just a leader. Abraham Lincoln was a dad. And uh, in 1862, two of his sons contracted typhoid. And well, one of them recovered really quickly. His 11-year-old son, Willie, 
deteriorated rapidly. This is at the height of the American Civil War, the leader of uh, America, the most important man in America was faced with this gut-wrenching tragedy. And now the author George Saunders wrote this stunning novel really exploring this kind of depth of pain uh, in the aftermath of Willie Lincoln's death. It's called Lincoln in the Bardo and it kind of looks to peer into the humanity behind this legend. And in it he kind of relays this true story of a woman who uh, bumped into Abraham Lincoln uh, a couple of years after his loss. And she writes about expecting somebody strong and secure. And uh, here's what she actually found. She, she wrote this. I was totally unprepared for the impression he instantly made upon me. His face was drawn into fixed lines of unutterable sadness with the look of loneliness as of a soul whose depth of sorrow no human sympathy could ever reach. The impression that I carried away was that I hadn't seen not so much the President of the United States as the saddest man in the world. The passage I've just read picks up with David, this almost legend-like figure, the one who slew Goliath. And we're suddenly faced with the grim reality of sin's sting, death. Because of David's sin, he is faced with the loss of his young son. And the portrait that we see of David today isn't of the kind of giant killing warrior. It's of a heartbroken dad. We see David begging with God for his son's life. The passage says he can't sleep, he can't eat. His servants try to make him just stand up and he refuses He's so completely and utterly consumed with the one thing that everything else falls away. Now, we don't hear here what words David used when it says he was pleading for his child, but we could presume it's something like what he wrote in Psalm 6. Psalm 6, David writes, I am weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. It's not hard for us to imagine that David was writing that psalm at a time like this. This is unimaginable pain. If you actually see in verse 18 that his servants are scared to even tell him what's happened because it seems like they think he might hurt himself. Verse 18, they say he might do something desperate. And none of this is foreign to our world today. None of this is just a Bible story. Statistically, 5% of us in this room right now will have lost somebody very close to us in the last year. You might be here today and the weight of David's sadness is not so foreign. A recent study that I read showed that Glasgow is the unhappiest city in the UK's unhappiest country. And that's, that's just in general. <laughs> it shouldn't be surprising that for some of us, we hear this passage and it's not just a story. Verse 18, where the servants say he might do something desperate. For some of us, that's not hypothetical. The desire to harm or, or kill yourself might not be so foreign to you. Friends, I, I've been there. 
I know some of you in this room have been there. That feeling that seems so real in verse 18, that one more straw on the camel's back and I am done. The Bible doesn't shy away from that agony. The pain that David faces is not just a Bible story. It's the reality of life in our fallen world. So the question really comes up again for us, how on earth can David keep going? How could Abraham Lincoln keep going? How do any of us keep going in the face of this kind of heartbreak? As I say, for many of us in this room, it's not an abstract question. How do I keep going, keep having faith and hope when I'm confronted with loss and pain and grief? How do I continue to worship the God who gives and takes away? How do I reconcile the character and the goodness of God with that statement that you probably recoiled when I read that the Lord struck the child? What happens when faith meets the real world of suffering? Listen, if you are in that spot today, I want you to know that we are glad you're here. And I also want you to know that I'm not just going to give you a 20-minute answer as to why these things are written down and why these things happen and then send you off and say, just get on with it. Life is hard. David, in our passage, is distressed. This isn't just an illusion. These things are real. And so what I want to do with you is just walk with David through this unimaginable circumstance, not kind of standing from a distance, but just getting in close, walking with him. How on earth does he respond to this news? Verse 19, is the child dead? Yes, they said, he is dead. How does he respond? David is heartbroken, but we want to see David's hope in the middle of his heartbreak. As he goes to God, he waits on God, and finally he receives from God. Let's see first what David's first movement is in verse 20. It just says this, David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at, the at his request, they served him food, and he ate. First, David goes to God. In 1960, C.S. Lewis lost his wife, Joy, to cancer, and he wrote a book called A Grief Observed about his experience of it. And in it, he said this. He said, in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs round and round. Everything repeats. He says, you start to ask yourself, am I going in circles? Or dare I hope I am on a spiral, but if I am on a spiral, am I going up or down? Lewis captured something of the kind of terror of grief. I don't know when I'm going to emerge. Am I going up or down? I might die from this agony. Am I going up or down? But we see David's movement here on the only thing he can control. It isn't deeper into despair. It is upwards 
into the presence of God, towards just a semblance of hope. This is a ridiculous thing. You might have had moments where grief or pain are so strong that you can't imagine doing anything but curling up and just embracing sleep and hoping you don't wake up for a long time. And after the way that we've seen David grieve, he doesn't want to eat or sleep or stand up. We might expect him in this news to go the same way. But instead he stands up, washes, gets changed, goes to the temple and worships God. For David, the agony of God's sovereign discipline in his life doesn't blot out the joy of God's goodness. As far as David sees, God is worthy of worship, no matter what has come. I don't know about you, but I so often separate out my responses to God. I'm confused and afraid, and so I withdraw. I think right now I'm not in the place to worship. But all through the Bible, we see God's people draw near to God, even when they are suffering. Maybe in his heart, David was angry at God. Maybe he had no idea how to reconcile what he knew with what was going on in his life. Maybe he didn't want to worship. Whatever the case, David worshipped. He worshipped even in the darkest moment of his life. David turned towards God. We see this in the book of Job as well. If you're unfamiliar with that story, Job was a faithful follower of God. He's described as one of the most righteous people in the world. And uh, he was tested by having everything that he loved removed. In the early chapters of the book of Job, his home and his children and his possessions, they're all stripped away from him. But here's what he says. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Job later goes on to say this, though he slays me, he slays me, still I will praise him. The first movement in our despair and our confusion and our fear is to go to God. He's the only one that can bear the weight of our pain. He's the only one that can comfort us. Child psychologists talk about something called uh, containment. And containment is this kind of process where a child comes to their parent overwhelmed with emotion, doesn't know what to do with a circumstance, and their parent kind of takes it and digests it and gives it back in this palatable form. Whether you have heard that word or not, you have either been contained or contained someone at some point. <laughs> and somebody comes to you a blubbering mess and you put your arms around them, that is containment. But did you know that God is able to contain everything that you bring to him? In our complete confusion and disillusionment and grief, it is God that wraps his arms around us and gives us peace. In fact, as hard as it might be, this process might just be part of what it means to have faith in the first place. 
the uh, Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren wrote this. She said, redemption itself requires that we let every tear roll. The worst thing you can do when you feel like God is not only giving, but taking away, is to run away from him. Many of you will know that uh, last year, my mum passed away uh, from cancer. And when she was first diagnosed, I was at church the day after. And uh, we were worshipping and I felt God turn me to Psalm 22. And the first verse of that psalm is, My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes it on the cross. But by the end of the psalm, we are aware that God doesn't forsake anyone. And I was reading it and I felt God say to me, even when the darkness is so thick around you that you can't even see your hands in front of your face, I am always holding them. Go to God. Go to God. There is no other place we can go, even when it is God who is taken away from us. He is the only one. Be like the disciples who come to Jesus and say, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? Where else could we go but to God? Where else could David have gone but to God? Have a look with me at verses 21 to 23 and we'll keep moving. Verse 21, David's attendants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David goes to God and his servants are flabbergasted. How on earth did that just happen? One minute you wouldn't eat and now you've just had a shower and gone to church. What is going on? And the answer is, yeah, first, David goes to God, but second, he waits on God. Here's what I want to put to you this afternoon. Only somebody who truly knows the character of God can stand up in hope like David does here. Because for David, there are no platitudes to fall back on. Normally, when we go through something, we kind of comfort ourselves with, oh, you know, well, they, they lived a good life. There's, there's none of that. For David, this situation seems utterly hopeless. Where could his hope possibly come from? Well, I kind of picture that classic American movie scene of a, a young kid whose parents uh, have forgotten to pick them up from school and uh, their phone runs out of battery and then the clouds, the heavens open and they're drenched and nobody's on the way and they're sitting and they're crying and all their friends have gone home and they're alone and they're soaked and they're sad. That's, that's how it feels, but much, much worse. Where on earth is David's hope coming from? But what we know is that when we are drenched and alone and sad, 
when we don't even see God coming to rescue us, we don't give up hope. David in his upward movement is like a schoolboy stuck at the gates, drenched and alone, and yet he knows what his dad is like. Instead of despairing, this boy gets up and starts dancing in the rain. He starts dancing in the rain because he knows his dad is good. His dad never forgets. He's never really late. He knows his dad must have a good reason to not be here. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows he's on the way. David gets up and worships God. He dances in the rain because he knows that something good is on the way. He knows in the words of the Apostle Peter centuries later that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. No, we grieve as those who have an eternal hope. David looks forward and says with deep sadness, my son will not return to me. In the same breath, he says, but I will go to him. For David, this incident isn't the kind of final straw on his back because he knows that a day is coming when all of this will be undone. He didn't know why, but he did know what God was like. Now you and I know that this is because of Easter Sunday. Death has lost its power. David just knew what God was like. And he knows that he can grieve his son with hope. Because God is not the kind of God that abandons his people in death. And here's something joyful for David and his son. This was not the end of the story. In fact, we're reading this story thousands of years later. David has already been reunited with his son. Far, far away from the grief of this moment. David is right now around the throne of God with his son on his shoulders, singing the praises of God. In this moment right now, David knows that his son's death was not for nothing. From where David is standing today, there is no injustice. There is no more heartache. From where we stand, it might still seem unjust, but for David now, no. No, he is around the throne there is no injustice, there is only joy. And there is joy because God is the one who steals away death's sting, who turns every bad thing to good. The famous verse, Romans 8, 28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. We don't understand how. Of course we don't understand how, but we know and we trust that it's true. David isn't just full of hope that he'll see his son one day in a kind of vague religious way. No, he is full of hope that everything awful will one day actually be used for his good in eternity. Tim Keller paraphrases Romans 8.28 like this. He says, for Christians, the bad things will turn out for good. Our good things will never be taken away from us. And the greatest things are yet to come. The Apostle Paul put it this way, our light and momentary troubles 
are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. No matter how it feels, in the grand scheme of God's infinite, eternal wisdom, nothing can ever hurt you. As Dallas Willard would have said, the will of God is a perfectly safe place to be. No matter what comes in this life, God promises you that it will be worked for your good. One day the downpour at the school gates will stop. The clouds will part and the trumpet will sound and Jesus will return. And with him the dead will be raised. Until then, like David, we wait with hope. Third and lastly, David receives from God. Turn with me to 2 Samuel uh, 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him and because the Lord loved him he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. A few weeks ago we saw God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 uh, that he would raise up a son to rule in David's place. God said this in uh, chapter 7, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. See, for David, the birth of his son should have been a moment of great joy. It should have been a moment where he saw the promise that God had made begin to be fulfilled in his life. But because of his sin, it looks like the promise of God is null and void. Because of David's sin, it seems that his future and his legacy has been ruined. His son, the one that was meant to carry on his line, is dead. As we've alluded to, tomorrow is the first day of Holy Week. And Holy Week is the week that the church remembers the final week in Jesus' life. And in this passage, we kind of see the snapshot of Holy Week. See, on Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus, the true son of David, begs God for his life. On Friday, the true son of David, Jesus, dies. Because he dies, God's people, just like David, don't die the death that they deserved. And until now in our passage, we kind of feel like those disciples on Holy Saturday, their Messiah is dead and they are hiding away, afraid and alone. David's son is dead. But soon after, David's son is born again. God blesses David with another son, Solomon, whose name means peace. And on Easter Sunday, God blesses his people with the rebirth of his son, who came to his disciples and said, peace be with you. God gives Solomon another name, Jedidiah, which means God's beloved. And God gave Jesus the same name at his baptism when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. David's son dies, but in his place, another son of David 
is born. It's something of a resurrection. David's hope and his legacy, his future is only possible because of this resurrection. God provides David with a son in his darkness. And he has provided us with a son in our darkness. Prophet Isaiah wrote this about Jesus. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Into our misery, in our pain, God himself stepped forward. God himself died to save us from death, but rose again so that we might have new life, even in our suffering. And everything we've said is summed up here. All of our hope in suffering comes from knowing that God himself has suffered for us. God himself knows what it is to lose a son. God himself knows what it is to stand at his friend's graveside and weep. God himself knows what it is to be betrayed and alone. Because of Jesus, there is hope in your suffering. Jesus suffered so that our suffering could one day end. And he rose again, a new son of David, to bring us new life. When we read the first verse of this passage and wonder, how on earth do I figure this out? How do I continue to love God when he gives and takes away? The ultimate answer is Jesus. God despises sin and suffering and grief so much that he would send his only son to die on our behalf. Do you know that a day is coming because of Jesus when grief and sickness and tears and pain will never be again? If you believe in Jesus, that day is coming very soon. This life in all of its agony is the worst that it will ever get for you. Jesus is the way. He's the suffering servant, the true son of David who dies willingly to spare his people from death. Today, would you come to him Find life. So how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God's actions in David's life with the goodness and love of God? How do we understand the relationship between God's goodness and the suffering of this world? Well, not by having a rote answer. Not by having a kind of five-minute apologetics talk where we say, well, it's not really what it seems. No, we... We understand it by going to God, by waiting on God and by receiving from God. The band are going to come back up now. And as they do, we're going to sing uh, the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And uh, this hymn was written by a man named uh, Horatio Spafford, which is a strange name. And um, he wrote the song just after he received this heartbreaking telegram 
uh, that his wife and his eldest son, who were on a boat coming to visit him in America, uh, had died at sea. He received this telegram and he immediately went to God and wrote this song. The first verse goes like this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. 